Well, if you're just joining us for the first time, Acts chapter 13 is where we're going to be. As parents make their way down, I do want to give two announcements um, of things that will be coming up, especially when I get back from vacation. Um, Ever since I've preached on Acts chapter 9, uh, the end of Acts 9, I don't know if you all remember that sermon. I do. It was very influential on me. Uh, It was a sermon where Peter was out and about, and he went to Lydda, healed the man Aeneas, then he went to Joppa, raised Tabitha, and then stayed at Simon the Tanner's house. And there has been a conviction from that sermon that stayed with me of Peter had put himself out there and made himself available for ministry. And, uh, and since that time, I've been praying, okay, Lord, how do we start doing that as a church? We have, uh, in our leadership and, and elsewhere, been praying, Lord, we want to be a mission-minded church. We want to be about ministries, reaching out to people. And a few weeks back, I proposed an idea to the leaders um, that the Lord, I think, gave me that I've, I've heard churches do when they go on foreign missions. They send teams forward um, to pray for those cities. And they walk around the neighborhoods they're going to be ministering. They start praying for, um, for salvations, for interactions to happen, and all these sorts of things. And I thought, why can't that happen here with us? One, it will answer the conviction of we're going to put ourselves out there in a position to meet people. And, um, and so that prayer walk ministry, I want to start when I get back. And, and I don't quite know how it's going to look. Um, it will probably change how it looks as we go. But uh, what I want to do is start going through our communities as a church in smaller groups and start praying. If, if that's all we do is pray for, for people, then, then that's all we do. But I also want to pray as we're going that the Lord brings people across our path. And as we put ourselves out there and, and available. And so with that, we want missions-minded people to be a part of that. Um, we want some ideas. If you have ideas, um, we welcome that. I, I certainly am not abstract in my thinking. That's difficult for me. I'm not creative. I'm sorry. That's my wife. Talk to her. But if you have some ideas of things that we could do locally, um, and, and missions outreach ideas, please come talk to us. But uh, I'm excited to get out there and, and uh, be part of this. So keep an eye open for that. Acts 13, we're going to finish the chapter this morning. And uh, it's good. It's a good, good chunk of scripture. 39 verses. Um, and it records two encounters that the Apostle Paul had um, at Antioch and Pisidia. And so it's one sermon, essentially, that he gives. And um, it's the first sermon in the book of Acts that we have recorded for us of a foreign mission sermon. And so in that sense, it's going to be very enlightening and and, uh, instructive for us as a church of, hey, this is the first sermon Luke recorded. It's certainly not the first sermon Paul ever gave on, on foreign land. But it's the first one Luke recorded for us. And because of that, Luke was, he was a doctor, and he was very intentional in the things he put in the scripture and recorded for us. And I think there's reasons why he chose this sermon to write down and record um, for our benefit. The outline of the chapter is going to look like this. First, in verses 13 through 15, we're going to look at the strategy that Paul employed in the places he spoke and the places he went. Because there's definite strategic planning in this. Um, And we're going to try and strike a balance because I know um, all planning 
um, can lead to a, a grieving or a quenching of the movement of the Spirit. So there's a balance. But certainly ministry is not haphazard. And, uh, and there needs to be some strategy involved. We're going to look at the specific message that Paul gave in verses 15 to 41. And this is going to take the bulk of our time because it's very important. Um, what Paul chose to say and to whom he chose to say it. And then last of all, we're going to look at the three responses from this message given. And uh, this is going to be a pretty common response uh, that we see as we begin to minister evangelistically. Okay? So, to begin, oh, and then lastly, we're going to kind of set up, this will just be more touching on this. We're introduced in verse 13 uh, to John Mark's desertion. Okay, if you look at, uh, if you saw my, my uh, sermon title, I called it Seekers, Believers, Opponents, and Deserters. John Mark is the deserter here. And this is going to present to us as a church, especially when we get to chapter 15, how this kind of situation in a church is handled. Because it was handled very delicately and rightly. And it's easy to look at a situation like we're going to consider in John Mark and say they're wrong and they're right, or they're wrong and they're right. And in my opinion, we'll see it when we get to chapter 15, is they were both right in how they handled it. Um, so, we'll, we'll set that up because that'll be important when we get to 15. Alright? Alright, so let's read verses 13 and 14 together of Acts 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. So certainly there is other towns. We know, in fact, Paul went to Galatia during this first mission trip too. Paul is he's, he's sailed from the island of Cyprus up to Asia Minor. Okay? And he's traveling through several little towns in Asia Minor. And, and Luke just mentions those, but he settles at the place of Antioch in Pisidia. Now, just for clarity, this is a different Antioch than the one in Syria from which we looked at they departed, right? Um, the beginning of Acts 13 said they left Antioch. They're not returning to the same Antioch. This is a different one. This Antioch is a Roman colony. It was a major trading center on the southern edge of Asia Minor, okay? So in that sense, um, Paul didn't neglect some of the smaller towns around. He preached the gospel everywhere he went. But he was also very strategic in where he went. Antioch here in Pisidia was a major trading center, one because of its location. It was up in the mountains, about 3,500 in elevation, 3,500 feet in elevation. But it was also one of the few towns that had paved roads. And so as a, as a trading hub to get in that city and plant the gospel there, allowed for the gospel then to be taken out of there very easily, okay? So Paul didn't neglect other towns, um, but he often, we see highlighted in, in Acts especially, these major strategic locations highlighted. In fact, we'll see some more. We're going to see uh, Paul spent years at Ephesus. Ephesus was a major, major place. Philippi, Corinth, Athens, all these had very strategic Places and things about them that caused Paul to want 
to go there with the gospel. So it is with Antioch here in Pisidia. Um, but in Antioch, there's also a very large Jewish population. And there's a large synagogue there. We're going to see as we keep going through Acts, and I'll establish it now, that it was Paul's habit and custom to always go to the Jews first. He would go to a synagogue. And the custom of the synagogue in those days was, was if there was a visiting rabbi such as Paul, they, they would always read a portion of Scripture out of the Law and then a portion of Scripture out of the Prophets. And once that was done, they'd sit down and they'd invite these visiting rabbis to stand up and share something, some sort of application. That's what we see happen here in, uh, in Antioch. If you read with me in verse 15, it says, After the reading from the Law and the Prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioned with his hand. Okay? So Paul took advantage of this opportunity to freely preach the gospel. It's a scary thing to give someone like Paul the open platform to preach, right? Um, he would not shy away and he did not hesitate. But it was, it was Paul's custom to do this first. And there's a big important reason we need to consider why. Paul so, said in Romans chapter 1 verse 16 that salvation is first for the Jews and then the Gentiles. Paul has an eschatological reason of why he would always go to the Jews first. And all that means, it's a big word for saying this, how Paul understood God's plan of history was that he chose the nation of Israel specifically to be his people. They rejected that responsibility and identity when they rejected Christ. But God did not reject them. They're still his people. But what he did do was he opened salvation to the Gentiles as well and made them in the mystery of the gospel a part of his body. And that's what he expounds on in Ephesians, for instance, when he talks about he, he, he got rid of that dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles and he made us one through his spirit, right? So there's no distinction anymore. But the Jews had a privileged position, and they still have a privileged position in God's plan. When you read the book of Revelation, you don't see the church in that book. And a lot of commentators or, or people of certain theological traditions conclude that's because the church has replaced Israel. We are the new Israel. No, that's false. And when you hear that teaching, that's not accurate. We are not the new Israel. We are a Gentile body of Christ. God is not done with his people. And Paul understood that. And it was he who said that very famously in Romans 9. Has God rejected his people forever? No. But he has caused them to be jealous with the inclusion of the Gentiles. Okay? So there's the eschatological reason. He saw God working toward an end. He will complete what he promised to the Jewish nation. So he always went there first in his reasoning. It's interesting, too, how Paul would approach... Uh, this sermon compared to other sermons. Because he's speaking to Jews and God-fearing Gentiles, he says, he starts with a history of Israel. We'll get, that, get to that in a second. You're not going to start this way, however, with every group of people. The Jews would know their own history. They would believe their own history. And they'd readily accept the things we're going to look at that Paul said. But, for instance, when he goes in Acts 17 to Athens, he doesn't start with these same principles and scriptures that he does here with the Jews. He starts with where they were as secular philosophers. And he meets them on their own ground. 
and then builds a case for Christ. This is so important because one of my points as we go through this, I want you to be thinking about, and I want you to look for as we get into Paul's words in his sermon, is to watch for how Paul works into his sermon to build Christian worldview. The way that Paul interprets the events of history concerning Israel specifically was God was behind every part of it. And so he's working to always establish Christian worldview. I'm going to do a, a worldview conference at my brother's church in October. And, uh, and then we're going to do one here, the same conference here, uh, maybe sometime this next winter. Because we see the need both as pastors to confront these big worldview issues that are infecting and infiltrating the church in how we think, how we interpret, how we see things. It is so important to always be establishing Christian perspective, not only from Scripture. Scripture obviously is, is the first source, but there's, uh, you apply Christian worldview in the sciences, in history, in philosophy, in all these other disciplines. And so we're going to work to do that. So, this first sermon, however, is primarily given to the Jews and to the God-fearing Gentiles. Think of Cornelius, if you remember Acts chapter 10. He was a Roman centurion, yet he feared God. He didn't become fully Jewish, probably because he wasn't circumcised. But he feared the Lord nonetheless. That's who Paul has in mind um, in Acts 13 as he goes through this. Okay, So, we read there, moving on to our next point. Let's get into a Paul's focus here, okay? First of all, in verses 16 through 22, Paul reviews for us very quickly the Jews' history. So let's read that together, 16 through 22. So Paul stood up and motioned with his hand. He said this, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed Saul, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all of my will. So in verse 17, I'm going to go through this very quickly, of the points that Paul hits on in their Jewish history, and, and maybe why he hit on these. First in verse 17, Paul says, God chose our fathers. This is referring to the patriarchal period. You remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He chose those men, and he made covenants with those men, which would extend eventually to the whole world, right? It was to the covenant, uh, the covenant of Abraham that it would be a blessing to all the nations, not just to the Jewish nation. So Paul refers to the fact that God first established this covenant with the forefathers, something these, um, these men would readily agree with. But he also mentions that he made this people great, in Egypt, that refers to Israel's growth as a nation under the 12 tribes. You remember under Joseph, he brought all of his brothers and his fathers in Egypt during the famine. And after that famine, 
the nation of Israel began to explode. He made them great in Egypt, so much so that Pharaoh then began to persecute them and burden them. And then he says this in verse 17, with mighty power he led them out. That's referring obviously to the exodus from slavery to Egypt and judgment upon Egypt itself. Then in verse 18, Paul mentions that he put up with them for 40 years. This is referring after the exodus. They wandered in the wilderness for the 40 years. It was also the place and time of the giving of the law, a very important time to the Jews. Paul said in Romans that it was that giving of the law, the oracles of God, that actually gave Israel their identity. So important was that time of, of wandering in the wilderness. And most importantly, in my opinion, is in that time in the wilderness that he began to teach them how to walk by faith. As a slave, you do what your master says. And that's what they did in Egypt. Now they had to walk in faith with God. In verse 19... He says he overthrew the seven nations. That refers to the conquest of the promised land under Joshua. Remember, Moses was not allowed to go in there. But he led Israel in by Joshua's hand. He, he overcame all those nations. In verse 20, Paul says that after this, God gave them judges. This is referring to that period after the conquest of judges all the way to Samuel, who was both the last judge and the first prophet that Israel had. And then in verse 21 and 22... He says the people asked for a king. This introduces us to Saul and to David. And then he specifically mentions in 22 that it was to David that God made a covenant, right? It's the Davidic covenant. David, on your throne, I will establish someone from your seed forever. There will always be a king in Israel. These were points that the Jewish people who were listening to Paul would readily know and they'd readily agree with. And so Paul is basically, what he's doing in, in getting the attention of these people, he's establishing a common ground. Okay, we agree on these things. And we agree that it was God who did all these things, right? Yes. That will allow him now to move forward in what he's going to emphasize in the next step and the next phase of God's plan which is verse 23 through 25. He shows this Jesus was David's descendant. Read it with me. Verse 23. Of this man's offspring, he's referring to David, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Referring to the Davidic covenant. Okay? As he promised. Before this, before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. In building a Christian worldview, whatever the case is, we have to start um, with things that, that either they don't know that we can start establishing an agreement on, We've got to begin building from there. It's interesting in my classes at seminary, my degree was in apologetics and philosophy. It was all about building Christian worldview. And my professor, Dr. Geisler, said this in one of the classes. He said, you know, as I, he's been doing this for 70 years, I think. He said, I used to start in, in reaching people and talking to people with the three arguments for God's existence. The argument from creation, the moral argument. And the argument of design. He said, but now our culture is at a different place. And I had to amend my approach to people. Because 
I can't just start with logical arguments anymore with them. Because they don't even think there is such a thing as logic. They don't even think there is such a thing as right and wrong. All they assert is, well, you believe that and I believe this, and they're both okay. So he had to add two points on to his approach. He had to first start, you know what? Truth about reality is knowable. It's such a sad state that we're in today, in America specifically, when people don't know if what we see, hear, touch, taste is even real. That's the state we're in. I remember a sermon, I've quoted this before, but Ravi Zacharias said one time he's preaching at an Ivy League school. Some of the most brilliant minds in America are young students attending. And a kid stands up and asks him, am I even real? How sad a state when our brightest minds are asking, am I even real? Do I even exist? Yes, truth about reality is noble. And secondly, the opposite of what's true is false. We can't have opposing views that are both true. So, whatever the case, we've got to work in establishing facts. There's a belief that says this, facts speak for themselves. Have you ever heard that? Don't believe it, it's false. Two people can look at the same fact and interpret it differently. Look at science, for instance. Facts do not speak for themselves. Nothing speaks for themselves. Everything must be interpreted. And they're interpreted based on the presuppositions we all hold concerning something. Presuppositions are what Paul is going to start dealing with. That's the real issue in talking with people. We must get down to what do you really believe? Because that is what is determining how you interpret something. Certainly the case with what the Jews did with Jesus, is it not? They did not believe Jesus' claims to be the Messiah. So what did they do? They killed him. Because they thought that's blasphemous. But they didn't understand the scriptures. What they held to was wrong. Though they knew the scriptures, they didn't understand it. And so what Paul does here in this next section, he shows that Jesus was this David's descendant. God had made a promise. He would bring a descendant, one from David, to ascend the throne. Now it's not sufficient to just say, Jesus is David's physical descendant. Two of the Gospels trace Jesus' lineage. It was really an incontestable fact that, yes, Jesus was a physical descendant of David. That's not the argument. The question is, so are all these other people. So what? Is he the king? That's the question. That's the question. And that's why Paul goes into John the Baptist here. Yes, Jesus was the physical descendant of David, but was he the promised one? John the Baptist, a man sent by God to prepare the way of the Lord, you remember Isaiah said. And he did just that. John, Paul quotes John here. In verse 25, John said during his ministry, What do you suppose that I am? I'm not he. Many people thought that John was the Messiah to come. And John constantly had to rebuff that. No, I'm not. The one who's coming after me, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal. Something that the lowest of the low in society would do. I'm not even worthy to do that with this man. But, in the Gospel of John... 
Here, I want to quote for you during John's ministry. Here's what John said when he actually sees Jesus coming. He said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This, he, this is He on behalf of whom I've said, After me comes a man who's higher than I, for He existed before me. And then he ends this, this um, statement this way, I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Those are John the Baptist's words of Jesus. That's John 1, 29-34, the whole encounter. So it's so important what Paul's doing here. He, he finds the common ground. Israel agreed on all these historical facts. God had promised David a descendant. He says Jesus was that descendant, both physically and John the Baptist also testified to this. Well, how do we know? How do we know? John the Baptist's testimony is true. Then Paul moves into the very heart of what the gospel is. Let's read verse 26 through 37. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent this message of salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize Him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning Him. I want you to stop and think about that truth. Because as a pastor, I see this. But I don't know that the church as a whole sees this. I, I listen to messages by other pastors, and this is something common to churches. The Jews read from the law and the prophets every week. They knew the Word. And what Paul says here is, yeah, they knew it, but they didn't get it. So it's not enough to sit and listen and understand, know these things. There was a spiritual darkness over their eyes because of their unbelief. This is the role of faith. Paul said it in 1 Corinthians, in fact, or rather 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he said, when one comes to faith in Christ, that veil is removed so that we see clearly. Before we come to faith, there's a veil just like Moses when he came down from the mountain and his face shone with glory because he'd been in the presence of God. The people said, put a veil over your face. We can't stand it. And Paul says, metaphorically, that's what's over your heart right now. You read the scriptures every week. You do these things, but you missed it. You missed it. That's what he said happened. But he goes on. They condemned him. Which is exactly what the scripture said they would do. In verse 28 it says, Though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this He has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that He raised Him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, He spoke in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore He says in another psalm, You will not let your holy one See corruption. For David, after he had served his, the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. 
But we whom God raised up did not see corruption, but he whom, I'm sorry, but he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. What a power-packed section of Scripture. I'm going to take some time to unpack this for us, because this is really the heart of what we're talking about today. Luke gives the most detail and attention to this section of the sermon as being the first sermon recorded on a foreign mission field. So what does Paul focus on? As I said, he moves to the heart of the gospel. It's so important to establish when we share with people all the ancillary facts surrounding the life and coming of Jesus. You can talk about his miracles. You can talk about uh, his birth. You can talk about all these things. Those are important but knowing facts or knowing prophecies that Jesus fulfilled or knowing the historical timelines with which he came and their accuracies, they don't save you. They're important, yes, but they don't have power to save. Knowing facts is not knowing the gospel. One of the greatest harms to the church that's been done has been by professors of religion and New Testament. You realize that? The higher criticism movement, if you've ever studied this, that started in Germany and highly influenced churches all over the world. Today it's in Baylor University, a Christian university. Housed in Baylor University is what's called the Jesus Seminar. And it's a group of self-proclaimed scholars who vote on what Jesus did or didn't say or probably did or didn't say or no, he didn't say that or... They're self-professed scholars, and they cast different colored beads based on what they think Jesus actually did or didn't do. And I had a professor right here at Eastern who loved the Jesus Seminar. This is everywhere. Religious scholars have done some of the greatest damage to the church. They know a bunch of facts. They do not know the gospel. This is what Paul's getting at with the Jews. His countrymen knew these things. But he often said, and he says it so clearly in Romans, there is a blindness over them that only is removed in Christ by the power of God. And so he's got to get in their face to deal with some of these things. So what he touches on are four things that are actually common to the Gospels, to the book of Acts, as well as some of the epistles. There's four things that are always repeated. One, the ministry of John the Baptist. Two, the death of Christ. Three, the burial of Christ. And then four, the resurrection of Christ. Those four things are common to all these accounts. So there's got to be some reason why they're so important. We've already covered John the Baptist. The death and burial of Christ should be obvious to us. But in case it's not... What did the death and burial of Christ do for us? As I said earlier, Paul, let me read the verse again to you. Paul said this, verse 38 and 39, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Today, the very common understanding of what salvation is, is this. Well, I'm trying to get better. 
I'm trying to be a good person. And they think that they read these moral precepts found in the law. Don't, don't lie. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't. Well, I, I'm not doing that. I've never killed anyone. I've never cheated on my wife or my husband. And they don't understand why was the law given in the first place? Was it ever given to justify you? Was it ever given to say, hey, you're a pretty good person, but that guy's, man, he's a loser. No. That's to miss the whole purpose of the law. The law was given as a mirror to show you you've got dirt on your face. I love, uh, I love how Ray Comfort, if you don't know Ray Comfort's ministry, he's this little tiny guy. But man, he's fiery. <laughs> and he's fearless. He goes to the most liberal places you can go and he stands on the corner and he preaches his, his guts out. It's, it's awesome. And he gets in, in people's business. He's not afraid to expose who they are. And so he asks some questions. He says, so you think you're a good person? Yeah. Okay, well, have you ever lied? Yeah. What do you call a liar? Or what do you call someone who lies? A liar? So you're a liar. Okay. Well, have you ever had adulterous thoughts? Yeah. Okay. Have you ever stole anything? Yeah. So you're a, a lying, adulterous thief. <laughs> and he just builds this case. And he only goes through three or four of the commandments. And every single person you talk to is like, oh, crud, I guess I'm not that good. But that's the legal claim God has on every one of us by His law. The law indicts every one of us. It doesn't justify us. When we're honest with ourselves and we do a real examination of, of who I am before God's righteous law, you know what it comes to conclusion? I'm in trouble. And then you usher in, why did Christ die? Because sin requires punishment. It requires death. That was promised to Adam. The day you eat of this, Adam, you will surely die. And Paul says death reigned all the way from Adam to Moses, all the way to Christ. Until Christ came and died on account of sin, we were under death. No hope. The law indicts every one of us, and it demands payment, which was death. Therefore, Christ became our substitute. And he was buried according to the scriptures. But Paul said in Romans 4 that he was raised for our justification. He was raised for our justification. This is where all true ministry begins and ends. We're now in the context in the book of Acts of missions. And there are so many approaches to missions that I'm not going to slam holy because I think their intent is good. But let us see how the scripture approaches missions to inform our philosophy and approach. Most of the time what we see in missions today is first we go address social concerns. And I'm not against that. Don't hear me say that. Jesus addressed social issues. When people were hungry, what did he do? He fed them. When people were sick, what did he do? He healed them. He cared for the social things that affect us. But you know what he did? Every place that he didn't do every place, every place he went, he preached the gospel. Every place. That was his primary goal. My father has sent me to preach the good news. 
This is where all missions start. If we go to a place, for instance, and fail to give them the gospel, we failed in missions. There's an interesting parable. Jesus said that the gospel is that pearl of great price. You remember that pearl of great price where a farmer finds this pearl buried in his land. And to obtain it, he goes and sells everything he has so that he might have that great precious pearl. He's willing to get rid of everything. And then the church comes in and gives all that stuff back and says, Well, here, take this back without giving him the gospel. People are willing to forego all they have to get the gospel, and then the church comes along and fails to give it to them. The gospel is where it begins. Jesus is identified as the Savior in verse 23. He put a name to it. Before it was just a promise, right? God had made a promise to the Jews. Now Paul says that promise has a name. It's Jesus. He sent his son to save Israel. He identifies what the son did. His death, burial, and resurrection. Verse 28, 29, and 30. And then in verse 38 and 39, he begins to establish for the first time we see in Scripture the doctrine of justification by faith. If you go read the book of Romans and Galatians, you'll see this expounded on in great detail. Here he simply mentions what justification is. But that word in verse 39, and everyone who believes in him is freed. That word freed is the word justified. Now I want us to be absolutely clear what justification by faith is because it is the cornerstone of the gospel. It's what sparked the Reformation. The Catholic Church had abandoned this doctrine of justification by faith. No, we're justified by good works. What we do can and does aid us in salvation. No, it doesn't. The law doesn't ever justify a person. It only indicts them. But we are freed. We are justified, according to verse 39, everyone who believes is freed. Here's what it means, and I want you to imagine this. All of us, according to the law, are indicted on many, many counts. We're going to be dragged before the judge. And we can't deny all these charges against us. We can't deny it. The law says your penalty is death. That's the legal demand the judge must follow. And he will follow. What are you going to do? How are you going to appeal to him? You're guilty. I'm guilty. We have no basis to shy away and plead for mercy. No. Yes, God is a merciful God. He's also holy and just. He can't violate his character here to appease it here. So what did he do? He said, I appease the entirety of who I am by the work of Christ. Because Christ satisfied the legal demand, death, so that his merciful character could be extended to you. So now, though we have this list of sins that we're guilty of, the judge can say, by faith in that man right there, you can walk out of the courtroom free. Why? Because the penalty's already been paid. It would be unjust for me to penalize you when they've already taken it. Just as if you were to go to a bank, pay off your car loan, and yet the bank keeps sending you statements, hey, you owe us interest, bud. It would be unjust for the bank to do that, would it not? It would be unjust for God to condemn you when he's already condemned Christ in your place. 
Christ is our hiding place. He is our justification. It is by him we can walk out of the courtroom free. Now to someone who carries the burden of guilt on their conscience, how great a message is that? For someone who's not blinded with the fact and denies the fact that, that I'm not okay. I know the things I'm guilty of. How precious is it a message that says, you can be freed. It's extremely precious. The problem is when we deny that we have an issue. So, lastly in verse 38 through 41 of this sermon, after identifying this great precious, precious truth of justification by faith, he says this in verse 40, Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells you. The gospel is offered to all. Christ died for all, and he loves all. But there's a warning attached, and this is what you don't find in most evangelical preaching today, is the warnings. The gospel is precious. It is the free grace of God extended an invitation to all who would believe. But there's a warning attached. If you refuse it, there awaits a terrible wait, a sentence for you. A terrible sentence. I wrote in my own notes... The word take heed here, or beware, it literally means make an intent and earnest contemplation of this statement. Bring your heart to focus on this truth, because in neglecting it, you will do the greatest of damage to your soul. That's what the word is trying to get, get across. Paul says, look, you've just heard the greatest thing you could ever hear. Pay attention to it. Let your heart dwell on what it's saying. Don't just cast it off because you're convicted. Don't just cast it off because you don't want to hear it or you've never believed it before. Give an intentional, earnest investigation into what I've just said. Peter said this in, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. He said that God desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. But the word there he uses is, is God literally gives space for everyone to turn to him, to repent. He gives everyone a, an allotted amount. And the problem is we don't know how much allotment that is. But do you understand? It's not open-ended. That's what Peter's getting across. God gives you space to repent. He does. Every person. But it's closed-ended. If you reject Him today, you might not get that chance tomorrow. When you think in your own mind, you will. That is presuming upon an Almighty God who has accusations against you and would be just in condemning you. Do not think you can walk away and come later. You are not guaranteed that. That's what Peter's saying. What you are guaranteed, as Paul said, today, if you hear His voice, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. What Paul does here in reaching his audience is he 
forces them to wrestle with their conscience. I love this. This makes people squirm today, but it's what we need. People who are living in sin and, and putting off the claims of the gospel, this should terrify you. In fact, Hebrews chapter 2 talks about that. What, what kind of judgment awaits those if we neglect so great a salvation? It's a terrifying judgment. In fact, I can't think of but one thing that's worse than being judged in my sin. And the one thing that's worse is if I rejected an offer that would have forgiven me. That's worse. That's worse. How offensive it is to God when He's got claims on every one of us. And He says, but I'll forgive you. Freely forgive you. It's yours. Turn from your sin and come to me. I love you. And the person hearing says, not me. You don't have anything against me, God. You're calling God a liar. You're calling Him unjust, unholy. That kind of response deserves a greater punishment. And it will receive it. That's the warning Paul gives. Beware of not listening to what I'm saying. So what were the three responses? Paul's preaching stirred some to seek out this message further. Read verse 42 with me. And as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them next Sabbath. Wow, I love that. They're not there yet. But man, Paul said some things that has got me thinking, I want to hear more. I love this because it shows, you know what? Not everybody is against the gospel. God is working in people's hearts I may not know of to draw them. And when you put the gospel claims out there, and I need to hear more. I'm terrified. I want to know more about this. He goes on in verse 43. And after meeting, after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who as they spoke with them urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life, believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city to stir up persecution against Paul and Barnabas. And they drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy. And with the Holy Spirit. In any environment where you preach, whether it's church, whether it's on the street, whether it's in a foreign country, anywhere, you will find these three responses. Seekers, those who would believe, and those who oppose. As way of application for us, don't be shocked when people reject you. That's part of the ministry. It hurts, and it's easy to take it personal. 
I get that as a pastor every week. It, it's hard. But it's part of it. One of the most telling accounts is the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and he said, I would have eternal life. What do I need to do? Follow the commandments. Well, I have. I've kept everything. Oh, okay. Well, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Let's see how you really love people. He wouldn't do it because he loved his money. And the text says, Jesus let him walk away. I don't think it was without heartache and grief, but he let him walk. Because that man, as Paul said to the Jews here, judged himself unworthy of eternal life. He wanted this idol in his heart and was not willing to let it go. And God said, okay, you can worship that, but you won't worship me in eternity. In eternity. There will be those who seek it out farther. And that's the great encouragement here. Paul speaks to the synagogue one week. The next week he's speaking to the whole town. <laughs> I love that. It stirred the interest of the people hearing. And they invited their friends. Come listen to a message that we heard. It's unlike anything we've ever heard. Free grace. You can be forgiven. One has paid our penalty. What is this? And so Paul entertained the entire town. He also said in verse 43 that many of the converts to Judaism and the Jews themselves um, believed. And Paul and Barnabas urged them to continue in the grace of God. And then, of course, there were the Jews who opposed Paul and eventually incited so much they caused a riot, a disturbance, a division in the district and kicked him out. They were jealous. But what I want to point out is this. Four times in these last few verses... Four times, Luke uses the phrase, the Word of God, the Word of God, the Word of God, the Word of God. What do you think his focus might be? The Word of God. The Word of God will always, always cause some kind of division. It will always draw lines in the sand. Here's what G. Campbell Morgan said. I love this quote. He says this, Note the effect of the Christian message. It is life unto life or death unto death. It produces jealousy or joy, blasphemy or belief, the spirit of hell which persecutes or the spirit of holiness which saves. The preaching of the cross forevermore appeals to the intellect of men and it divides them. It stirs the emotional life, producing opposite and conflicting emotions. It storms the will and it demands belief or blasphemy. The preaching of the word divides as nothing else in the world can divide. I would follow up saying this. In one sense, the gospel is the most dangerous thing that can enter a town. You realize that? It's the most dangerous thing that can enter a town. Because when its claims are asserted, you've got to choose one or the other. And sparks will fly. Sparks will fly. It forces people everywhere to cross a line or stay where they are. And once the gospel comes to an individual or group, it is then impossible to stay neutral and ignorant. It's impossible to stay neutral or ignorant. Everywhere it goes, it appeals to people to come out of the world and come to Christ. That's its draw. Yes, you might face backlash from peers, from family, from co-workers. You might face ridicule and reviling. It's far better to face it with people than with God. It's 
terrifying, Hebrews says, to fall into the hands of the living God. Luke, in this sermon, has recorded for us the most realistic picture of what missions would truly look like. That's why I believe I started out saying, why did Luke record this sermon and this response? Because this is what missions realistically looks like. You start with justification. Notice Paul didn't talk about the other aspects of, of salvation, sanctification and glorification. Those are, those are important. Those are for believers, right? And he spends his time in the letters to Christians saying, hey, okay, here's what God wants for you. He wants you to be sanctified. He wants you to grow in holiness, and here's our future hope and glory. But those two aspects of salvation are for those who have received the gospel. All he talks about on missions, you can be free from all things that the law can't free you from. It's free. Come here. Come to Christ. That's why Paul, limited to that, very simple, very basic. Establish certain truths with the people and let them wrestle with it. That's it. That's it. Appeal to people's conscience. Stir up their heart. Because we're dead in sin and we need that. We need to be prodded. That's what the gospel does. Sorry, I failed to uh, progress in my slides there. So what about John Mark? And then we'll end here real quick. Verse 13 tells us that John Mark, if you remember, John Mark was Barnabas' cousin. And he came back to Antioch in Syria with them from Jerusalem. He was a Jewish man. And at the beginning of 13, when the Holy Spirit says, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, he didn't name John Mark, but John Mark tagged along on this trip. And after traveling the whole island of Cyprus, before they sailed the sea to Asia Minor, John Mark bid them adieu. He said, not for me. I'm going back to Jerusalem. We're not told why. And so I've cautioned speculation because there can be numerous reasons why. Some commentators think he was scared. Some think he abandoned the doctrine that Paul was teaching. In fact, some speculate that it was he who went back to Jerusalem and stirred up the Pharisee sect to advocate circumcision in Acts 15. I don't believe that, but speculation swirls about this. We're not told any information, though. But this instance is going to be a very important relational aspect of, that applies to churches today. In Acts 15, Barnabas wanted to take John Mark on their second missionary journey, and Paul said, no way. He's not going. You remember how close Paul and Barnabas were, right? This issue split them. Boom. Barnabas took John Mark to Cyprus. Paul chose Silas and eventually Timothy to go with him on the next missionary journeys. And it's my opinion that both of the men were right to do what they did. And we're going to see why when we get to Acts 15. John Mark wasn't ready. Paul was right to not take him. But at the same time, Barnabas was right to not abandon him either. And later on in Paul's life, he would write this to Timothy on his dying letter. Bring with you John Mark. He's valuable to me for ministry. That's the power and grace of God. Working in relationships when we allow it to happen. We're going to examine that more. Ending applications for us. First, the God who governs all things. I hope you saw that through this sermon. 
Paul's worldview is God is behind all this. He sent us out to preach this gospel, and he's calling people out. God is a God who governs all things. He's building worldview, a biblical worldview. This is so important. We've got to be equipped and, and able to do this with people. You've got to be able to identify what are your presuppositions. What are you doing? What are you believing? Paul said in 2 Corinthians 10 that the, the weapons of our warfare are strong in Christ. They're mighty for the destroying of these things. And the things he's referring to is every thought that exalts itself against the knowledge of Christ. 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5. A beautiful work. Patience. When Paul saw that these men wanted to hear more, he came back. When he saw that the Jews were done, he said, we're going to the Gentiles, they'll listen to us. When you're dealing with people, we've got a lot, this is an agricultural community, and so I'm going to illustrate this with agriculture. A farmer, when he plants his seed, does not expect immediate fruit. He understands the season must have its way. And in due time, it will bear fruit. Understand that in your encounters with people, church, in bringing them to faith, might require a season of patience to let the Spirit work in them. There might be a time when you say, I'm not going to continue to cast my pearls before swine to trample. Jesus said that. But, as long as one is still asking questions, the Lord is drawing, you bear with them. And you let him bring this fruit. It takes patience. Sometimes, bearing up with people is hard. Especially someone who might be seeking the Lord and yet still living in sin. It's hard to watch that. Because while they're seeking the Lord, man, they're committing blasphemous things. Christ did that though, didn't he? He does it with us, does he not? <laughs> he bears up with us. He's patient. Last of all, we've got to learn as a church to balance hope with warning. This is a terrifying thing to reject the gospel. It is terrifying. Given what Christ paid, that you might be free. To reject that, there's nothing greater worthy of wrath. <clears throat> Paul told the church at Thessalonica when he got there that they turned to idols, to God. And their faith in God went all over the region. It was awesome. But he said part of his preaching to them included to flee from the wrath to come. That's part of his preaching. You see, the preaching of wrath and judgment is only offensive to people who reject that they're sinners. You realize that? When you don't take responsibility for our sin, that's offensive to hear. But when you know you're sinful and you're burdened by it, it doesn't offend you. Because I know I'm guilty of these things. I know I'm worthy of judgment. And that's why the gospel is so appealing. That's why G. Campbell Morgan would say, the message of the cross can divide like nothing else. It will show you who's hardened toward the gospel and who's open to the gospel. These warnings will. Let's take a time and pray. I'll invite the worship team up. We're going to sing one last song. Bow your head with me and spend some time in prayer before the Lord.
Father, I thank you for this message of the gospel, the hope of our salvation, Christ in us, who's given for us, who shed his blood, and in shedding his blood paid the penalty that was mine. For Leviticus 17 says the life of any creature is in its blood, and that blood of Christ was spilled and drained from him. The life was taken from him. Because that's what sin and judgment demanded. And yet we're told that he did that willingly. We're told that it was because of the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Because his desire was through that death would also come justification and freedom for the sinner. Life, the second chance we want. Father, while the gospel is offered to all, there's warnings attached to it to not turn from it. Because people turn from the gospel and they harden their hearts toward this message to their own peril. And that is not your desire. You say so often in Scripture, you don't delight in the death of the wicked. You would turn that they, you would that they would turn and live, Ezekiel 18. In 2 Peter's, we said, Lord, you desire all men to come to repentance, to have freedom, because you've allotted this time for the gospel to go out to the nations and appeal to men's hearts and minds and conscience to come. To abandon, to repent of those things that are causing the separation between you and they. Father, we come as broken people and we're restored. We're made new. We're washed clean. A new birth happens, Father. And a new life is given. A life of peace, of joy. As this passage ends, that the church continued on with joy and full of the Holy Spirit. Everywhere the presence of the Lord is, there is joy. Because we have been forgiven. Because we know the burden of our sin has been taken from us. And cast away never to be found. Lord, thank you so much. God, I pray that your spirit today is wrestling with some hearts and minds. Father, I pray you reveal, as only you can, the need to simply humble ourselves and cry out, confessing our need for you, confessing our guilt, and yet placing our faith in Jesus. Seeing him as who and what we need. And seeing, Lord, that it was your good and loving will to give him to me. Father, if there's any here, I pray that you're even causing them to call out right now in their heart. That repentance is happening right now. That change of mind leads to a change of action. Father, that they'd start, as Paul and Barnabas said, to continue to walk in God's grace. Urging them. Father, thank you for saving us. So good. Our appeal is that you come. Keep your heads bowed and eyes closed. If you are here, I just want to encourage you. The Lord's wrestling with you. That you would come talk to me or talk to Bo, talk to Dwayne. We'd love to explain further the way of salvation if you have questions. It's a joyous thing. 
It's a thing to be embraced because God loves us.